Well, it is 2023, so welcome, everybody, to 2023. Um, New Year's is a, a time and an opportunity that many times we can reflect on the past, think about where the Lord has brought us, um, but perhaps even more importantly, think about where the Lord wants us to go. And as I was thinking, praying through what I should share this morning, I thought we would turn to Second Corinthians chapter 5, um, which is a lesson from the Apostle Paul. And so this morning we're going to talk about laboring for the Lord. Uh, let me pray for us and then we'll get going here. Uh, King Jesus, we gather here this morning in the fear of you. Another year, God, it's a gift from you. We don't deserve it. Uh, the, the, your servant James said um, uh, that we should only say, if the Lord wills, we will go and do this or that, because uh, we don't know, Lord, what your plans hold for us. Um, we are the, you are the potter, we are the clay, Lord. But we know that you're good and that you're faithful and true, and that as long as you will that we should be in this world, you have a plan and a purpose for our lives, to, to know you, to love you, to serve you, to worship you, to adore you, to glorify you, to be your ambassadors uh, in this world for our king and, our, and his coming kingdom. And so, Lord, as we think about today laboring for the Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our minds to hear, to believe, to trust, and to obey, to step forward in faith in courage, in conviction, in love, and in obedience, God, to see you do what only you can do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. We'll be looking at the whole chapter, um, looking at many points, but briefly. What always has struck me about 2 Corinthians is that the Apostle Paul, if you've read it recently, you probably remember that he is... Paul is really defending himself. As strange as it sounds to us, you know, you know, we like to think that if the Apostle Paul showed up, we'd be like, oh yeah, Paul, whatever you say. Well, the churches that Paul ministered to, guess what? He fought battles in every single one of them. And people didn't respect him. And people didn't want to listen to him. And it, and, and it was hard, Okay. But in 2 Corinthians, he's arguing for his ministry. He's defending his ministry. He's t he talks about the, his sufferings for Christ. He argues about who he is, you know, by grace through faith in Jesus. He talks about the nature of his ministry, what it is that drives him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today, I think what we can do is we can, we can glean some lessons from the Apostle Paul to learn what it's really like to follow Jesus. To learn what it's really like to labor for the Lord. And I hope it's a timely message for our church this morning. From 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's word. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. This is what Paul wrote. He said, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. 
For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Word of God. You may be seated. So we're going to look at this passage here. Uh, I got a six-point sermon today, so, you know, we may get out by supper time. And, um, but now I got six points. I'm going to talk about each one briefly, but basically I'm just going to take a few themes from chapter five here today and just kind of apply them to, to life and ministry here particularly how we labor for the Lord. And so the first point here that we're going to look at this morning is, number one, we labor with groaning. We labor with groaning. In verse 4 there, Paul says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, not being burdened, uh, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So, if you read 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 and kind of look in the context to see what he's talking about, he's talking about, he's talking about his, this earthly tent, which is a reference to the body. He's talking about the body. And he says, in these earthly tents we groan. That is, in these fallen, broken bodies, in a fallen, broken world, we groan. You ever groaned at life? Well, that's what Paul's saying. When you live in a fallen, broken body, in a fallen, broken world, you're going to groan. Life is a life of groaning. And he said, and he said, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. He's talking about the resurrection. He says that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
one day these mortal bodies, these fallen broken bodies will literally be, will like be swallowed up. Our resurrection bodies will be swallowed, our, our broken bodies will be swallowed up by resurrection bodies. We will be changed. We will be made different. We will be made new and we won't groan anymore because we will no longer have a fallen broken body, but a redeemed, resurrected, perfect body. Incapable of sin. But nevertheless, as long, while we are still in this tent, we groan, Paul said. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul would say that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you live a life of faith and love and godliness and conviction for the truth of Scripture, you will face opposition. It's not a question of if. You will. It will be anything from a weird look. Okay, that person's kind of weird. He actually believes that Jesus stuff. It'll be anything from a weird look up to broken relationships, right? Remember, Jesus said that, uh, that he came to bring his sword and that he will, he will set a mother, a mother against daughter, father against son, brother, uh, in-laws against in-laws. He divide, when you decide to follow Jesus, it will, it will strain your relationships. And, it will go, and, that, and then it can go all the way up to threats on one's very life. And the Apostle Paul experienced all of these different things, all of these different hardships and groanings for following Jesus. And, and the hardships of the Christian life extend beyond just directly suffering for the name of Christ. It, it entails all the normal hardships of life. In life, we experience physical hardship. We get sick. We get injured. Sometimes those injuries become chronic and we have to deal with them for the rest of our lives. Life in general and the Christian life in particular, is hard. It's not easy. It's a walk in the park. And we should understand that and we should expect that. Because I do think a lot of people, you can, a lot of people misunderstand and, and they get disillusioned because somewhere along the way, they believed or were told a lie that if you follow Christ, everything's going to be fine. It will be fine in the end. But until the end comes, you, your life may get worse, not better. For following Jesus. Even if you do everything right in life, it will still come with pain, physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. How do I know that? Because Jesus lived a perfect life and they crucified him. So if you do everything right, it's no guarantee of an easy life. Life is one of suffering, it's one of groaning, and I believe a timely lesson that the church needs to learn in 2023 that we need to take to heart is that if we're going to follow the footsteps of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to accept and even embrace the fact that it will not come without a cost. And we shouldn't shy away from it, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. We should embrace it. You cannot follow Jesus and expect everyone to like you. You cannot follow Jesus and expect that you'll never face physical, emotional, or, or, or relational suffering. We are not greater than our master. And that's what Jesus said. We're not greater than our master. So what do we do? We must continue to labor through pain. We work when our bodies hurt. We have to keep working when our hearts hurt. But one thing we can't do is throw in the towel and throw up our hands. Because what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do? What are we going to do as Christians? We're going to look Jesus in the eye one day and say, you weren't worth it?
No, we're not going to give up. We're not going to get in. We're not going to give in. We're going to endure for our Christ. He endured suffering. He was betrayed by some of his closest companions. He was abandoned by his own disciples. That wasn't the sign of him doing something wrong. It was the sign that he was doing it right. So if we're going to be a church worthy of the name, we have to be ready to groan for Jesus. To understand that as long as we live in a fallen, broken world with fallen, broken bodies, it's going to hurt, and we're going to have to labor through the pain. But we don't have to lose hope because the same Jesus who suffered for us is the same Jesus who fights for us. It's the same Jesus who's coming back for us. So we don't lose hope. So number one, we must labor with groaning. Number two, we labor with courage in the Lord. This is the next lesson. So we labor with groaning, and then we labor with courage in the Lord. Um, in verse 5 there, he says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we... we Paul says that God has given them this spirit as a guarantee. That is that for Paul, when a person becomes a Christian, the essence of being a Christian is that you have been born again by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has come into your life and is changing you and is working in you uh, the work of Jesus Christ. And that spirit, Paul says, is a guarantee. If you have the spirit of God, the Bible, he calls it, it's, it's like a seal. It's like a stamp. It's like God saying, mine. And when you belong to God, guess what? Nobody can take you from God Almighty. Right? So when God seals you, you belong to him. You're his. It's a guarantee. For Paul, right? That, 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 when you, when you live a life of suffering, that means something. Because if you, if there's no hope at the end of the tunnel, you're wasting your time. But if there's a seal, if there's a guarantee that every sacrifice made for the Lord will receive its reward, then you can endure anything. And that's what Paul was saying. We groan in this broken world, but we're always, he says, we're always of good courage. We're good courage. Why? Because we know that, that if we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. But if we're away from the body, we're at home with the Lord. And In other words, what Paul is kind of saying is like, it's like, we're of good courage because we have the guaranteed future hope of resurrection life. And the worst thing they can do is kill me. And when they do that, I'm with Jesus. Which is better than any circumstance this life has to offer. So in other words, the worst thing that can be done to me in this world is send me to Jesus. And so, so what does it mean? It means Paul's not concerned about it. Whether I'm at home, if I'm, if I'm not with the Lord, I'm still here. That means i got a work to do. And I'm still going to labor. But we're of good courage. It, mean, it, means, it means good cheer. It means confident. It means that in the face of his suffering, Paul hasn't given in to despair. He hasn't given in to despondency. He hasn't given to sourness or bitterness. Okay? If you live life long enough, you're going to face temptation to get sour, to get bitter, to get hardened, to not be of good cheer, of good courage. And Paul says, no, 
despite all the sufferings that I've faced in my life, and Paul faced a lot of suffering, he says, I'm of good courage, I'm of good cheer. I think the lesson for us as a church is that we need to be serious and fierce about our joy in the Lord. About our joy in the Lord. Fierce about our courage and confidence in the Lord. Yes, you see, yes, we, we experience the same hardships of life that everyone else does. But the difference should be that we as followers of Jesus should respond differently to those hardships. If we grow just as sour and as bitter and as hard-hearted and as angry as a lost person does, what does that say? It says Jesus doesn't make a difference. And that's a lie. And we're not going to tell lies about Jesus. And so we should be able to maintain a serious joy even in the midst of greatest suffering. We should be able to be of good cheer, to be to be confident, to not, to not grow bitter at life, to not give into despair, to not lose hope. We don't have to. We shouldn't. The Lord is God. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's sovereign over any situation that you find yourself in. And if you belong to him, he's 110% for you and not against you. And so we have no reason to lose hope. We have no reason to get discouraged. Nothing can take away our resurrection hope. And so we should be able to face the challenges of life and ministry with a sober but sure hope and joy and confidence in God. We should refuse to grow weary and get tired and get bitter. We should remember the unshakable promises of God. We labor with courage in the Lord. So we labor with groaning. We labor with courage in the Lord. Number three here, we labor to please the Lord alone. We labor to please the Lord alone. Again, in verse 8, it says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. We make it our aim to please Him. Paul said, My aim in life is to please Jesus. If that means I'm going to please Jesus with my life, I'm going to please Jesus with my life. If that means I'm going to please Jesus with my death, I'm going to please Jesus with my death. But whatever God calls me to or through, I'm going to please Jesus. That's my aim in life, is to please Jesus. Did you know Paul could have avoided a lot of hardship in life if he decided that he was going to please people and not Jesus? Do you know that? Paul was a rising Jewish star. He had all the best Jewish credentials. He could have had all the praise and pats on the back in the world from the people that he wanted it the most from, the, the religious elite in Jerusalem. Okay? There was only one problem with that life for Paul. He met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he no longer could live for himself. He no longer could live for himself. Christ saved him. Though he was a blasphemer, he said, and an idolater. 
and persecutor of the saints. Paul, God saved him. And so Paul's aim was to please Christ first and foremost, even if it, and it always did, put him in opposition with many others. It caused him a lot of sorrow. It caused him beatings and stonings. It caused him shipwrecks and arrests. Probably, for Paul, the most painful thing that it caused is it caused tension within the churches. Because churches got off track, and he had to exercise his authority to try to restore them to health, and they didn't like it. And they bucked him. And he had dear friends turn their back on him, and even worse, turn their back on Jesus. That's life. That's ministry. We should, as followers of Christ, we shouldn't be caught off guard when stuff like that happens. He had churches that showed him no respect. He had people that openly undermined his leadership. He saw people walk away. He had different friends on the back on him. But struggle is not always a sign that you're doing something wrong. Sometimes it's a sign that you're doing something right. Paul would have given up if his aim was to please men. He would have given up. And here's why. Because you can't please everybody. Try it. And let me know how it goes. You can't please everybody. It's a lot easier and it's a lot more freeing to just try to please one. To try to please Jesus. And if your aim is to please Jesus, then guess what? You're free. You're free. You're free from what everyone else thinks about you. And a lot, you know, if we're honest, 90% of what makes, not, you know, if we're, I'm just making that up, but a lot of what we do is solely done because of what we think other people will think about it. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Am I lying? Most of what we do is we do it based around what we think other people are going to think about it. What does Jesus think about it? If you can be concerned about what Jesus thinks about it, then you'll be okay if other people don't think too highly of it. When your aim is to please Jesus, you're free. You're free to suffer. You're free to be maligned. You're free to be lied about. You're free to endure pain and and loss because your aim in life is isn't what most people's is. Your aim in life as a follower of Christ is not your personal happiness. It's not your ease. It's not your greatest comfort. Your aim in life is to please Jesus. And when your aim is to please Jesus and not to just be have, have an easy, happy-go-lucky life, you're actually free to suffer for him. That's what, that's what he says, in, and that's what Paul says we should do in verses 14 and 15 there, Right? He says, he says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. I think that means he's saying if you're a follower of Christ, you have died. Your old self has died. Your old self has died. And he died for all that those who live, those who live in Jesus, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so that's the question, right? If, if Christ has died for us, and our old self has died with Jesus, and new resurrection life by the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of us, the burning question for us is, who are we living for? 
Are we living for Him who died and rose for us? Or are we living for ourselves? But Paul says He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. And so that's the question we need to ask. That's the question we need to ask every, every day. That's the question we need to ask when we gather here on Sunday mornings. Why am I here? Am I here to make myself happy? Am I here to get my preferences met? Or am I here for Jesus? Can we ask God to put fire in our heart and steel in our spines to say, you know what? I'm going to please Jesus with my life. And I'm just going to walk that path and follow it whatever we may lead. Look, as a sheep, the shepherd doesn't have to tell you where you're going. You just got to follow him. Because we trust him, right? We can trust Jesus. We can seek to please Jesus alone and not please ourselves. And if that means denying our wants, preferences, ease of our own lives in order to please him, please him, we can be free to do that. Because it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. So we labor with groaning. We labor with courage in the Lord. We labor to please the Lord alone. Number four, we labor in view of judgment. We labor in view of judgment. You see how all these things are, are tying together here. Paul says in verse 9, So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul's heart and ministry here strongly echoes Jesus. Jesus encouraged his followers to live lives in view of judgment. That sounds strange to us, but that's clearly what he said. Let me give you four verses. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. In other words, be afraid of hell. So don't sin. Live your life in view of judgment. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Live in view of judgment. One more, Matthew 24, 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible clearly teaches that a judgment is coming. If you are a follower of Christ, you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not what you do or could do. Nevertheless, the Bible still quite clearly teaches that everyone will be judged according to our works and to our deeds. And that there are varying levels of punishment in hell and reward in heaven based on your faithfulness to Christ. 
everyone must sit, everyone must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There are no exceptions. You, me, everybody. And what does it mean? It means we must live in view of judgment. When you know that you're going to have to give an account for Jesus, to Jesus, that will change the way you live your life now. Because let's just say, for example, you're hanging out with some folks and they're trying to get you to do something you know you shouldn't do. If you think about the fact that one day you're going to have to answer to Jesus for what you're about to do, that'll give you the courage to tell your friends, no, I'm not going to do that. We must live in view of judgment because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we must stand for the truth. We must deny ourselves and follow him. We must sit, uh, serve, give, and go. We must put others before ourselves. We must seek to please him above all else, no matter the cost. Jesus is the king. We are the servants. He has entrusted to us a tiny slice of his kingdom. Okay? And so... The people in your life, your family, your children, the relationships that you have, the job that you have, everything belongs to Jesus. He has put us in charge of a tiny slice of his land, his property, his possessions, his time, his resources. He's entrusted a certain amount to you, your life, your time, your energy, your resources, your everything. And when we stand before Jesus, he's going to say, brother, what did you do with what I gave you? And if we were faithful, and if we trusted, and if we were waiting for him and expecting his return and lived in view of that, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But if we started messing around and mistreating his other servants and playing around to satisfy our own desires, he's going to do what he said here. And in that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So as a church, Paul says, Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord. And so let us labor in reverent fear. We as a church, as Hillside Baptist Church, we don't have to give an account to other people in this community. People out there, they may or may not like what happens in here. Guess what? It doesn't matter. What matters is, what does Jesus want? from us, and from our church. So as a church, let us labor in reverent fear, in earnest desire to be faithful to our master, knowing we shall give an account. So we labor with groaning, we labor with courage in the Lord, we labor to please the Lord alone, we labor in view of judgment. Number five, we labor in truth and love. We labor in truth and love. He says there in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So notice here that Paul says the love of Christ controls us. So we have the love of Christ in our hearts, and then he says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Christ. And so in other words, the love of Christ controls him to do what? The love, of, the, the love of Christ controls him because it, it's, it's, it's based on the truth, his, his fundamental conclusion that Jesus Christ has died for his people. 
And so in Scripture, truth and love, they always go together. They're not opposed to one another. They always go together. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For Paul, the ultimate truth was the gospel. That God's Son, the Messiah King that we just sang about, <coughs> came and lived a sinless life so that he himself could, so that he could offer himself as a substitute to pay for someone else's sins, namely ours, so that we might be forgiven of our sins. And then he physically, bodily rose from the dead, vindicating his life, vindicating his ministry, vindicating his identity as the Son of God, and vindicating and proving that he had, in fact, accomplished what he came to do. The wages of sin is death, but forgiven sin means resurrection life. Therefore, if we are, have our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ, one day, just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too shall rise from the dead. That's the truth. Jesus Christ is the king of the cosmos. He has been given the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And he's coming back one day to judge the world. That story, that, that history, that reality the gospel is not just some pie-in-the-sky myth, fairy tale. It's the true story of reality. And either we're going to embrace that story or we're going to live in a false one. And if that story is the true story, then the love of Christ must compel us. The love of Christ must compel us to tell people about Jesus. If we love to tell them the truth. If we love people, we give them the truth. We, love motivates what we do because we don't want people to enter into a Christless eternity. Love and truth go together. And this truth animated Paul's life. The love of Christ controlled him. It's a, it's a strong word. Like, he had no choice. It controlled him to proclaim that truth to others. To speak the truth in love. And that's what God has entrusted us to do as a church. We have this gospel. And yes, you know, I mean, like, I get it. I, I was raised in the rural south. Lots of people who think they know Jesus don't really know Jesus. But that doesn't stop us from telling the truth. We speak the truth in love. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised. So we labor with groaning. We labor with courage in the Lord. We labor to please the Lord alone. We labor in view of judgment. We labor in truth and love. And finally... We labor as ambassadors for the king. We labor as ambassadors for the king. Paul said in verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul viewed himself as an ambassador for Christ. What's an ambassador do? An ambassador is a high government official tasked with developing good relations between two parties, two entities, okay? Paul was an ambassador for Christ, 
And the ministry that he was given, the job that he was given was the ministry of reconciliation. So again, this is the true story of the world. Jesus Christ is the king. The whole world belongs to Jesus. Okay? Don't forget that. Jesus is the king of the United States of America. Jesus is the king of Ukraine and Russia. Jesus is the king of Europe, Asia, South America, Africa. Everything belongs to Jesus. All the kingdoms of the world are just leasing some property and some time. That's all they're doing. But one day, the lease is going to be up. And the landlord's going to come knocking. You, you tracking with me? But what has God done in the meantime? Jesus is the king. His kingdom is coming. When he comes, he's going to take his kingdom back for himself. He's going to establish his manifest rule and reign in the world. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But until he does that, what has he done? Is he, he has sent ahead of himself ambassadors. He, you know, it's, it's like these parables they talk, like a long way off, but he's sending ambassadors to go ahead of him to prepare the way for when the king arrives. And Paul was an ambassador for Christ. And what was his job, his mission? It was the ministry of reconciliation. It was the ministry of reconciliation. You know, we live in America. We like democracy. We like to vote on things. That's fine. But let me tell you something. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. We don't get to vote. Jesus tells us what to do. And what he says goes. So when Jesus shows up, either you're going to be a citizen of his kingdom or not, right? Now, how do you know if somebody, if, if, you're, if you're a subject to the king, how do, you, how do I know that somebody, that Jesus is their king? Well, I can see it in their life. Because guess what? If, some, if, if Jesus is your king, then guess what? You listen to the king. You know, again, democracy president, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go on Twitter and bash the president of the United States. But guess what? Uh, you know, back in the day when they had monarchs in England, you, did, you didn't write a letter, you know, bashing the king. Because you probably wouldn't wake up the next morning. Right? You don't just bash a king. Well, guess what? Jesus is the king. He's the boss. If he's our king, what does it mean? It means we love him. It means we serve him. It means we honor him. It means we respect him. It means we fear him. Jesus is the king. Well, guess what? He's the king whether everyone acknowledges it or not. And Jesus is the king and he's coming. We know he's the king and we're his ambassadors. So what are we doing? We're trying to help people see that Jesus is the king. And we're trying to reconcile them to their king. Because as long as we live for ourselves, we are in rebellion against the king. And so we're trying to tell people, dear friends, Jesus is the king. He, he died. He, he's such a great king, in fact, that he was willing to lay down his own life so that he, could not, he wouldn't have to count your sins against you so that you could be forgiven of your rebellion against him. And he's going to give you full free citizenship into the eternal kingdom of God. That's a good deal. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to be, it's kind of hard to become, you know, legally a citizen of the United States. But guess what? It's actually not that hard to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You got to turn from yourself and trust in Christ. 
It's the message of reconciliation. God reconciling the world to himself. God wants he, God, God, uh, God's table will be full. And, and he's inviting people to his kingdom, to his table. No longer enemy rebels, but fully privileged citizens within the kingdom of heaven. And we are his ambassadors. His, the ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to us. He says something remarkable there in verse 20. It says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You see, the incredible thing about following Jesus is that the Bible said, Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says that he's an ambassador for Christ and that God makes his appeal through them. You see, when you're an ambassador, you're an official, formal, sealed, stamped representative of the king. And in that authority, if you say it, it's like the king himself said it. When you invite someone into the kingdom of heaven, it's not just you speaking, it's God speaking. God is making his appeal through you. God takes our mouths and uses them to reconcile people to himself. It's 2023. You know, in 2020, if you had told me what the next two years were going to bring, I would have said you're crazy. We don't know. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. I can't tell you what's going to happen in 2023. But I can tell you this. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we can trust him. And we can labor for him with groaning, with courage, to please him alone in view of judgment and truth and love. We can labor as ambassadors. And I, I promise, when we do, God's going to show up. And he's going to do exactly what he wants to do, to build his kingdom in preparation for his coming. So all we've got to do, church, is be faithful. Be faithful to labor for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. Thank you that he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord, for not counting our trespasses against us. And Lord Jesus, God, I pray that maybe there's someone within the hearing of my voice right now who maybe just deep in their hearts, God, they just, they don't know that they belong to you. They don't know that, that they're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I just pray now, Lord, that you would just speak to their hearts. That you would just speak to their hearts and let them know that full citizenship is available. If they turn from sin, turn from self, 
trust in you with all that they are, you won't hold their sins against them. You'll do more than that, Lord. You'll adopt them into your family. You'll set them, you'll appoint them a place in your kingdom to reign with you forever. I pray, Lord, that the ministry of reconciliation would take place this morning, that you would appeal to hearts in this very room to be reconciled to God. And I pray that they would. Lord, help us as a church in 2023. Lord, we don't know what's coming, but you do. You know what's coming, God. So I just pray that you would help us. Help us to look out. Help us to look up. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be bold. Help us to be full of good courage and good cheer and hopeful in the face of difficulty and hardship, knowing that our King loves us and He's coming back for us. Lord, help us labor well for you. 2023. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.